0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast. I'm your host, Jack Henneman. This is episode number four, The Admiral of the Ocean Sea, part two. Last time we talked about the reason why the history of the Americans includes Christopher Columbus, the background of European exploration before Columbus, a sketch of Columbus himself, and the basis by which he built his argument, his pitch deck, if you will, for the financing of his expedition to search for Asia by sailing west across the ocean. This time, we will talk about the almost 10 years that it took Columbus to raise the money and get the ships, stores, and licenses needed to make the trip, and what he sought in return. We do not know whether Columbus ever tried to raise the money in Genoa, his hometown. It would have been an obvious first move insofar as the Genoese were wealthy and interested in becoming more so. Regardless, the first investor, invisible scare quotes again, to whom he pitched was the energetic young king of Portugal, John II. John II had built on Prince Henry the Navigator's work and extended the Portuguese exploration project. In 1494, he established a scientific advisory board, the Junta dos Mathematicos. Please pardon my Portuguese to study matters of navigation and discovery. This board of accomplished scholars was charged with developing improved tools and tables for navigation and assessing the value of proposals for exploration. Morris believes that Columbus pitched the enterprise of the Indies, as he called it, to John II in late 1484. The accounts of this first pitch are all derivative and substantially after the fact. Those derivative accounts assume facts not in evidence, influenced by what we know from subsequent proposals from Columbus. Morrison reviews the evidence and concludes that, quote, Only this is certain about the Portuguese negotiations of 1484 and 1485. Columbus required the king to provide him with more than one ship, and Japan was his proposed destination proposition was rejected by a commission of experts on technical grounds, and we may fairly infer that the experts' objection to the enterprise was their knowledge that his estimate of the distance was impossibly small. Yet Columbus had made an impression on the king. They parted friends, and very likely John II encouraged him to call again in case his own explorers failed around Africa. In 1485, Having failed to win a patron in Portugal, Columbus headed to Spain and the dual sovereigns Ferdinand and Isabella. There he remained for most of the next seven years with only short interludes elsewhere, including one fruitless trip back to Portugal. During the late 1480s, two developments would put an end to John II's interest, such as it was in Columbus's project. First, in 1487, King John authorized Ferno Domo To sail west in search of new islands, and maybe Japan, we do not know. In the event, Dolmo made the same mistake of all the westbound explorers before Columbus. He jumped off from the Azores. The strong westerlies, beating down on those relatively northern islands, frustrated Dolmo's progress, as it had those before him. No doubt that failure made King John less enthusiastic about throwing good money after bad. Second, in December 1488, Bartholomew Dias returned to Lisbon after having been gone more than a year. He had rounded the Cape and made his way north, with the coast of today's country of South Africa to his northwest. Diaz turned back before getting even so far north as the location of the city of Durban. His crew was on the verge of mutiny, but having turned the corner of the Cape. The prospects for the Portuguese reaching India via Africa had improved considerably. So, having been first rejected by John II, Columbus reached the royal city of Cordova in January of 1486, having just missed Ferdinand and Isabella, who were off to Madrid for the winter. They returned in April, and at that point, responded to the various overtures from Columbus's network and invited him for an audience on May 1st. Here we cannot do better than to quote a couple of paragraphs from Morrison's book. Isabella of Castile was a strikingly handsome woman with regular features, a fresh, clear complexion, blue eyes and auburn hair, the coloring particularly admired in Spain because of its rarity. Her manners were gracious, dignified, and affable. And she showed such tact in dealing with people as to gain an ascendancy over her turbulent subjects that no king of Castile could boast. She was simple in her tastes, temperate in her diet, and only tolerated frivolous entertainments at her court in the hope of weaning young ruffians of the nobility from their savage amusements. For the internal problems of Castile, which were many and complicated, she showed a statesman's grasp and pursued a policy with tenacity and skill when once she had given her confidence to a man, he could count on her unwavering support. Her piety and exemplary moral conduct were such that even in the corrupt court of her brother and predecessor, no scandal was ever breathed against her name. Christopher Columbus and Isabella the Catholic were of the same physical type, very similar in character. She was his senior by only four or five months, Surely some spark of mutual comprehension and understanding passed between them when Columbus was first presented to her in the audience chamber of the Alcazar of Cordova, unquote. Now, before we get to Isabella's answer, a little context is in order. Morrison again. Since their marriage in 1469, Ferdinand and Isabella had curbed the power of the nobles and strengthened that of the crown, restoring internal order, and succeeded in arousing the economic energies of Castile in a variety of directions, and to an extent previously unknown. They had liquidated the secular struggle with Portugal by renouncing West Africa and securing the Canaries, whose conquest, a dress rehearsal for that of America, was already underway. Since the Canaries were Columbus's destined point of departure, that was all to the good but a nearer conquest, then being pressed, of the Moorish kingdom of Granada, was using so much energy and money as to hinder Columbus's chance of interesting the sovereigns in an oceanic enterprise. It was as if a polar explorer had tried to interest Lincoln in the conquest of the Antarctic about the time of the Battle of Gettysburg." Close quote. Naturally, Isabella had a few questions. Did her scientific advisors think Columbus's proposal was practicable? Could the crown afford it? And so forth and so on. Isabella, therefore, demurred and used the politician's favorite form of cover, the expert commission. She charged Fray Hernando de Talavera, the scholarly prior, prior of Prado, to organize an ad hoc advisory board to assess Columbus's proposal. In the meantime, she put Columbus on a modest allowance and arranged for him to stay with a local noble. So began a deeply frustrating period for Columbus. The Talavera Commission would ultimately take more than four years to report its findings. There's a shocker, during which Ferdinand and Isabella were largely distracted prosecuting their war against the remaining Muslims in Spain. Columbus did not, however, sit on his hands. In 1488, he went back to Lisbon, at King John's invitation, only to have his hopes for Portuguese sponsorship terminally dashed, when Diaz returned at the end of that year with the news that he had rounded the Cape of Africa. Shortly thereafter, Columbus returned to Spain. Columbus dispatched his mapmaker brother Bartholomew to pitch the deal to Henry VII, the King of England. It is not clear from the sketchy historical record whether Henry VII was intrigued or not, but he obviously did not end up financing the venture. In 1497, a mere four years after Columbus had returned with the news that a lot of land lay a relatively short distance to the west, Henry did engage the Italian explorer John Cabot. His real name was Giovanni Cabato to explore the coast of North America and perhaps find a Northwest Passage to the Indies. So Henry may have found the Columbus project plausible, but was by inclination a fast follower rather than a disruptive investor. In any case, by 1490, Columbus, Bartholomew Columbus, was across the Channel trying to secure the interests of Charles VIII of France. The French king wasn't any more interested than Henry, but his older sister... Anne of Beaujou promoted the expedition in court and gave Bartholomew a bed and a job. The possibility of French sponsorship must have remained credible at some level, insofar as Christopher himself was preparing to leave Spain for France to pitch the deal personally as late as 1491. If you have been following closely, the Talavera report was to take more than four years from 1486 and Columbus was still looking to France in 1491, you have concluded correctly that the Talavera Commission recommended against Columbus, rather resoundingly. The committee judged his promises and offers were impossible and vain and worthy of rejection, and that it was not a proper object for their royal authority to favor an affair that rested on such weak foundations and which appeared uncertain and impossible to any educated person, however little learning he might have. Ouch. The commission report does not survive, but Columbus's son and the 16th century biographer recites six arguments against the proposed expedition. First, a voyage to Asia would require three years. Second, the western ocean is infinite and perhaps unnavigable. Third, If Columbus reached the Antipodes, the land on the other side of the globe from Europe, he could not get back. Four, there are no Antipodes because the greater part of the globe is covered with water and because St. Augustine says so. Five, of the five zones, only three are habitable. And six, so many centuries after the creation, it was unlikely that anyone could find hitherto unknown lands of any value. Silly as all of this may sound to modern ears, Morrison points out that this is exactly the sort of reasoning that would have won the day in Europe of 1490. And it must be said, there's practical truth in it, insofar as more or less nobody believed Columbus's convoluted and results-oriented calculation of the distance involved which I dug through in some tedious detail in the last episode. The Talavera Commission was essentially correct, and Columbus was essentially wrong. No caravel could have reached Asia by a western route. Fortunately for Columbus, Ferdinand and Isabella neither accepted nor rejected the report of the Talavera Commission. Instead, they told him to bring the whole thing back up again when they had finally concluded their 10-year war against the Muslims of Granada. Columbus, for his part, spent the first few months of 1491 kicking around Spain, no doubt intensely irritated. Just as he was planning to join his brother in France to try his luck with Charles VIII, at some point in the fall of 1491, Isabella sent Columbus money in order that he might get a new set of clothes and a mule and make his way back to court. Again, Isabella put Columbus's proposal before another ad hoc commission with different scholars on another old politician's trick, which made quick work of it and kicked its now favorable scientific recommendation, Columbus's bad reasoning notwithstanding, up to the Royal Council. The Royal Council rejected Columbus, this time apparently on deal terms. Those are worth some discussion. In the vocabulary of a modern financier, Columbus was proposing to disrupt the entire global economy by finding a direct westerly route to the riches of Asia. For that, he'd requested both capital investment and significant compensation. As capital, Columbus had requested three caravels manned and provision for one year and loaded with trading goods such as hawks bells, brass basins, glass beads, red caps, and colored cloth. As compensation, Columbus demanded that in the event of success, he become a caballero, so that he and his descendants would be called Don, this or that. That he be appointed great admiral of the ocean, with all the rights and privileges attaching to admirals of Castile. That he be perpetual viceroy and governor of all islands and mainlands that he might discover and that he and his descendants get a tenth part of all revenues and precious metals derived from these lands and have the privilege of freighting an eighth part of all ships trading with the countries he discovered. On January 2nd, 1492, Columbus joined the victory procession that entered Granada. Then the axe fell for him. Before many days, he was informed that his enterprise was absolutely and definitely rejected, Sovereigns themselves confirmed this at an audience, which they meant to be final, and in which they wished him bon voyage. You can sort of see how bummed he must have been. After six and a half years of waiting in Spain, Columbus was done. He saddled his mule, loaded his saddlebags, and headed out of town toward France. And then, as a bolt from the blue, everything changed again. Ferdinand's close advisor, Luis de Santangel, the keeper of the Privy Purse, went to Isabella and basically said, you guys made a bad risk-reward calculation. The three caravels aren't very expensive. You don't have to give Columbus any of that other stuff if he doesn't succeed. And if it turns out that Columbus pulls this miracle off for some other country, we really will kick ourselves for turning him down. Isabella sent a messenger to retrieve Columbus, who'd only made it about 10 miles, and the parties got to work on the definitive agreements. No, seriously, this deal was as lawyered up as a Silicon Valley Series A round. Morrison, writing 80 years ago, described the deal in words that any corporate lawyer today would understand. Quote, almost three months were required to negotiate with the sovereigns after the great enterprise was accepted in principle. We only know that Fray Juan Perez acted as Columbus's attorney and Juan de Coloma represented the sovereigns. Very likely the delay was due to chancery red tape, copying and recopying documents, greasing the right palms and all of that. The main documents of the great enterprise are seven in number. The capitulations or articles of agreement of April 17th, 1492, sometimes called the commission. The letter of credence to foreign potentates, dated April 30th. The passport, undated. And three orders of the sovereigns, dated April 30th, about fitting out the fleet. The capitulations of April 17th are in five articles, each signed It pleaseth, their highnesses, Wanda Coloma, and the whole document signed by the king and queen. One, their highnesses, appoint the said Don Cristobal Colón, their admiral, in and over all islands and mainlands, which shall be discovered or acquired by his labor and industry, and the title, with all rights and prerogatives appertaining thereto, shall be enjoyed by his heirs and successors perpetually. 2. The said Don Cristobal is appointed viceroy and governor-general over all such mainlands and islands as he shall discover or acquire in the said seas, and he may nominate three candidates for each officer, from whom the sovereigns will select one. 3. He shall take and keep a tenth of all gold, silver, pearls, gems, spices, and other merchandise produce or obtained by barter and mining within the limits of these domains, free of all taxes. Four, any case involving such merchandise or products will be adjudicated by him or his deputy as admiral. Five, he is given the option of paying an eighth part of the total expense of any ship sailing to these new possessions and taking an eighth of the profits. Unquote. The financial terms of the venture did not. as subsequent apocryphal story maintained involve Isabella pawning her crown jewels. There was, however, some creativity. The sovereigns had just fought a 10-year war. Money was not lying around in heaps. That would come during the century after Columbus and because of Columbus. In the event, the crown borrowed about 75% of the cost from a separately endowed police agency And Columbus himself put up about an eighth of the initial raise. Since he had needed money to buy clothes and a mule only the previous summer, presumably he was able to raise his founder's stake from his own network on the strength of his contract with the sovereigns, just as founders of a tech venture would do. The balance probably came from the treasury of Aragon. With that, Columbus had the money, the licenses, the mandate of the Spanish crown, and the possibility of upside, all of which he needed to acquire, man, and equip his famous ships. Columbus arrived at the port city of Palos de la Frontera on May 22, 1492, and on the next day presented the city fathers and other assembled notables with the orders of Ferdinand and Isabella. It read in pertinent part, Blah, blah, blah. Therefore... We command that within ten days of receiving this, our letter, you have already and prepared two equipped caravels, as you are required by virtue of the said sentence, to depart with the said Cristobal Cologne, whither we have commanded him to go. And we have commanded him to give you an advance, pay for four months for the people who are to sail aboard of the said caravels and in the other caravel that we have commanded him to take, whatever is commonly and customarily paid on this coast to the people who go to sea in a fleet, unquote. And so on and so forth, all in a very regal and well-drafted way. In short, the taxpayers of Palos were ordered to cough up two specified caravels, the Niña and the Pinta, and Columbus was to rent a third ship, his flagship Santa Maria. were to be crewed and provisioned within 10 days. Kings and queens are not always good at sweating the details. In any case, for all sorts of perfectly predictable reasons, it took 10 weeks instead of 10 days to get ready for sea. Morrison characterizes this as good luck insofar as he suggests that had Columbus sailed via the Canaries and the Easterlies in June 1492 rather than August, He could not possibly have avoided some sort of twister by which Morrison meant hurricane. Of course, for those of us who have just made it through the 2020 hurricane season on the Louisiana coast, the later departure would not seem to have improved Columbus's odds in the least. In the event, as we shall see, Columbus and his expedition were very lucky in their weather, at least on the trip west. Sadly, nobody knows exactly what Niña, Pinta, and Santa Maria looked like. There is no contemporary painting or drawing of a single ship in which Columbus sailed. So the many supposed depictions are all to some degree speculative. Morrison goes on for more than 30 pages about the three famous ships and caravels in general, the first European ships that could tack close against the wind. It's all quite interesting and yet another reason to read The Admiral of the Ocean Sea, but it's far enough afield from the project of this podcast that I'll spare you. Now we'll take a quick look at the officers and crew of the first voyage and finish up this episode with a glimpse at Spain's most fateful decision other than sending Columbus on the first voyage. Well, we can be quite certain that Columbus never said, our people are our most important asset, or anything else that sounds like it came from the mouth of a modern human resources functionary, it was nevertheless the case that it was essential to recruit capable men, they were obviously all men, with a wide variety of skills. This was not easy for Columbus to do because he did not come from Palos, and he was not even Spanish. I was a foreigner bearing nothing but a bunch of letters from the remote sovereigns to persuade 90 or so suitably skilled men to sign on for a voyage that had never been accomplished. As it happens, he had three advantages, although the third would come back to haunting. First, he had legal and bureaucratic advantages. The sovereigns were footing the bill and paid four months wages in advance to be held for the sailors on their return. More importantly, they had suspended all civil and criminal legal processes against many sign on with Columbus, with a promise of a pardon when they returned. Well, this gave rise to the criticism in later centuries that Columbus had been saddled with a wretched hive of scum and villainy. Morrison looks at the objective measure of their performance on the first voyage and the fact that many of them signed up for subsequent trips with Columbus with no such incentive and concludes he got pretty good men, neither riff nor raff, at least as measured by the standards of the day. We shall see in the next episodes that they did some pretty nasty things. The issue is whether they did more of such nasty things because they were particularly nasty men attracted by the pardon or because the norms of Spanish sailors in the late Middle Ages permitted no end of nasty things. More likely the latter. Second, Columbus got lucky and not for the first time. There was living in Palos an ancient mariner called Pedro Vázquez de la Frontera. Pedro Vasquez had, in his salad days, sailed on Portuguese voyages of exploration, including the trips more than 40 years before that discovered the two westernmost Azores, Flores and Corvo. He had pursued the mythical island of Brazil, not the only mythical island with a now familiar name, and sailed to the latitude of Ireland in the north. Pedro Vasquez came forward with his ancient mariner stories, and in the words of a witness years later, encouraged the people and told them publicly that they should all go on that voyage, and they would find a very rich land, and he said it publicly in the plazas. Sadly, Pedro Vasquez did not live to learn that he was right. Somebody murdered him before Columbus returned from the first voyage. Third, and most importantly, Columbus fell in with Martin Alonzo Pinzon and his seafaring family. Martin Alonzo took command of Pinta and his younger brother as his master. Another brother, Vicente Yanez Pinzon, became captain of Niña, and a cousin shipped as a mariner on Pinta. This was both important and faithful. It was important because it meant that a trusted, experienced local family was to play a central role in the first voyage. Recruitment, no doubt, got a lot easier. It was fateful, because the Pinzons would become competitors with Columbus in the contest for the credit. Titles and emoluments that came with the first voyage's discoveries, leading to litigation in the 16th century that lasted almost 50 years. Ugly as that litigation turned out to be for the fortunes and reputation of the Columbus family, historians love a long lawsuit for the documents it produces and preserves. It is in no small part from that litigation that we know so much about the first voyage. In the end, Columbus recruited 90 men and boys for the first voyage, because they were on the payroll of the crown and all monarchies, even in the late middle ages have people to write everything down and audits accounts and stuff. We know the names of 87 of them and some biographical details. Morrison describes the crews of the three ships and their various competencies, pilots, surgeons, scribes, skilled craftsmen, and so forth. At some length, which I will not do except to mention two interesting items, Luis de Torres, a converted Jew known as a converso, came along because he knew Hebrew and some Arabic. The received wisdom, then, was that Arabic was the mother of all languages, so Torres was expected to make conversation with the Grand Khan and other Oriental potentates. Nothing about this worked out. The other important point is that Columbus sailed basically unarmed, Yes, they had weapons, but Columbus brought no men-at-arms on the first voyage, not even crossbowmen. Spain had experienced conquistadors still at work wiping out the natives in the canaries, but not one of them shipped with Columbus. He was equipped for discovery and filled his ships with provisions for a year, which suggests he was planning on a voyage of less than that time. This makes sense since he had underestimated the distance to Asia by about 70%, putting the coast of Japan at roughly the location of the Virgin Islands. Lucky for him, they were there. Next time, we will talk about the westward leg of Columbus's first voyage, including the first contact on the first ever Columbus Day. Before we join Columbus and his three storied ships at sea, I did want to step slightly off to the side of our story and read to you Morrison's account of the third hugely consequential event that year in Spain, the expulsion of the Jews. Bear in mind that Morrison was writing this in 1940 or so, after the rise of Hitler and the start of World War II, but before anyone outside Nazi circles knew that the Holocaust was coming. Quote, Columbus did not once mention in his writings a tragic movement that was underway at the same time as his preparations, one which must in some measure have hampered his efforts and delayed his departure. This was the expulsion of the Jews from Spain. On March 30, 1492, one month before concluding their agreements with Columbus, Ferdinand and Isabella signed the fateful decree giving the Jews four months to accept baptism or leave a country where many thousands of them had made their home for centuries. And whose intellectual life they had contributed in a degree far beyond their numbers. As Columbus journeyed from Granada to Palos, he must have been witness to heart-rending scenes similar to those which modern fanaticism has revived in the Europe of today. Swarms of refugees who had sold for a trifle, property accumulated over years of toil, crowded the roads that led seaward on foot and leading donkeys, carts piled high with such household goods as could be transported. Rabbis read the sacred scrolls, and others played the traditional chants on pipe and tabor to keep their spirits up. But it was a melancholy procession at best, what with weeping and lamenting and the old and sick crawling into the fields to die. When they arrived at Puerto Santa Maria and for the first time beheld the ocean, the Jews raised loud cries and invocations, hoping that Jehovah would part the waters and lead them dry shod to some new promised land. Camping where they could find room, or crowded aboard vessels that the richer Jews chartered, they forlornly awaited the order to leave. Finally, word came from the sovereigns that every Jew-bearing ship must leave port on August 2nd, 1492, the day before Columbus set sail. Perhaps that is why he waited until the following day. But even then, he did not avoid sailing an unwanted company. Sixty years later, an old man deposed in Guatemala testified that he had been grommet on a ship of the Great Migration that dropped down the Rio Salt on the same tide with a Colombian fleet. And by curious coincidence, when his ship was sailing back to northern Spain after discharging her cargo of human misery in the Levant, she saw Pinta, returning from the great discovery and heard news that in due time would give fresh life to this persecuted race, unquote. On that somber and prescient note, we will end today's episode. As usual, please send me comments, criticisms, corrections, and questions by email at Americans at gmail.com or on the website for the podcast, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. And if you like what you hear, please give us a good rating in your podcatcher and tell all your friends. Thank you.